as we do consider this text in Matthew's Gospel, we are moving forward in his prologue. And if you've been tracking, you'll know that what Matthew is doing in these first two chapters is laying out lines of evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. He makes that claim in verse 1. That's how he opens his gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. For any Jewish reader, that's a bold claim. And so then, Matthew, for two chapters, demonstrates the reasonableness of his claim. He shows us that Jesus indeed is the long-awaited-for King of Israel. I wonder if you've noticed, perhaps, as we've been working through each line of evidence, that the way in which Matthew makes his proof each time is subtly different. He began by making the claim in verse 1, and then the first thing he does is to give give us a genealogy. We would call this a historical proof. He invokes the testimony of history, many, many names, to show us that Jesus is of the right lineage to be labeled the Messiah. What Matthew then does is talk about Jesus' birth by quoting a prophecy from Isaiah. So we're now in the realm of prophecy fulfillment as he draws on one verse spoken many, many years before portending, foreshadowing a supernatural birth, namely a virgin conception. And he says, because that was the way in which Jesus came into the world, there is a a fulfillment of that prophecy, and that then constitutes a second proof that Jesus is the king. Last week, we considered the wise men. Jesus having been born in Bethlehem is another fulfillment of prophecy, but again, it's more than that. Every single time Matthew is doing something subtly different, last week we saw that Matthew is projecting forward. He's leaning on the words of Isaiah chapter 60 as he, leans, as he projects forward in accordance with Jewish expectations that a king would come and the nations would stream to him. And for that reason, again, Jesus has to be the Messiah. So every time... Matthew is constructing this complex argument that's wonderfully rich, showing us that Jesus could not have been anything else but the long-awaited-for king. Sure enough, in our text this week, Matthew does something different yet again. We do see the words of fulfillment in verse 15, but he's actually doing more than showing us that a prophecy has been fulfilled What Matthew is doing here is what I often like to term as finding resonant frequencies. Matthew is finding resonant frequencies with certain Old Testament texts. I remember as a young boy finding out about the phenomenon of resonant frequencies. I finally understood why it is that when the, the opera lady sings at a certain pitch, the glass vibrates to the point of smashing. I used to enjoy as a boy finding that resonant frequency with the car window so that now the air is pulsating and hurting everybody's ears on the freeway. (laughs) Resonant frequencies exist all around us. In Scripture, there are resonant frequencies. More than simply saying, here's an Old Testament text that has been fulfilled in Christ, there's actually some correspondences that go beyond the text quoted. 
If you were to read a commentary or a theological book discussing this text, the word that they would use is typology. That's the theological term for my resonant frequency. Here, Matthew is constructing or identifying typological relationships. We're in the realm of typology. What does that mean? Simply that Matthew shows Jesus to correspond, to be presented in the likeness of certain characters in the Old Testament. But the important point to note when we talk about resonant frequencies or typology is that there is always an escalation. So Matthew shows us that Jesus corresponds to certain Old Testament characters. But it is not merely a horizontal correspondence. That frequency grows such that when Jesus appears, the correspondence is clear, but he shows himself to be yet more glorious than the Old Testament counterpart. What are the correspondences that Matthew shows us today in these few verses? There are two. One reaches all the way back to Moses. The second goes back to King David. There are types that we want to consider this morning. The typological relationships, the correspondences, the resonant frequencies are reaching back to Moses and to David. And what Matthew is doing is showing us that this man, Jesus, appears as a greater Moses and as a greater David. A more glorious Moses and a more glorious David. A better Moses and a better David. Again, linking this text into the broader context that would have served as a proof for Matthew's original readers. Perhaps it doesn't stick out to you as anything akin to a proof, but to Matthew's Jewish readers, it would have been. They would have had certain expectations built into their thinking as it relates to the Messiah. Expectations that would have been put in them when they were children, hearing the Old Testament scriptures read. And so as Matthew points out the correspondences, As they become plain for everyone to see, they then function as a proof for his original readers. Whether you were seeking that proof this morning or not, they also serve for all of us as a point of worship. As we come and behold Jesus to be our Moses and our David... A yet more glorious Moses, a yet more glorious David, it should prompt us to worship him and to align our lives with his commands. So that is our prayer this morning, that we would see Jesus as the greater Moses, the greater David. We would worship him in response and obey his word. Let's consider the first, and that is Jesus as our Moses. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child 
to destroy him. The correspondences are fairly clear with the situation into which Moses was born. So they would be, first and foremost, that both occur in the context of Egypt. He's being told to flee to Egypt. Moses was born in the servitude to the Egyptians, and so the the geographical marker is the same in both cases. In both cases, we have a king who is intent on working against God's plan. Pharaoh felt threatened by the number of Israelites in his nation, and so he gave an instruction to to kill the children, throw the, the firstborn child into the Nile. He had increased their servitude as a nation, and now he wanted to do away with the children so as to to thwart their growth. He felt threatened by them. Similarly, as we learned last week, Herod felt threatened by this new king on the scene. The wise men somehow understood that the king of Jews was here. They pronounced him as such, and Herod was threatened. And so now he, like Pharaoh, says, I want to kill this child. So there's that correspondence. What is the nature or what is the significance of Matthew showing Jesus in the likeness of Moses? Certainly, the entry point might be to teach us yet again about God's sovereign hand, his good guiding hand in the events of the life of Christ. You'll notice in verse 13, We're told, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. This is the third dream thus far in Matthew. This angel of the Lord keeps showing up. He's sent by God to warn Joseph or to inform Joseph of certain things. And more than that, we understand that the the angel is preventing this child from being killed. So very evidently, all the way through Matthew thus far has been a testimony to the good, guiding, sovereign hand of God. Certainly, that is one of the reasons for this correspondence. If you think back to last week, I argued that as you consider the good, guiding hand of the Lord over Jesus' earthly life, that teaches you a lot about how God views you. This is a doctrine that we need to impress upon our hearts Over and over again, we can't get beyond this because we so desperately need it. You need to understand that just as you see God's goodness, his preserving hand in Jesus' life, in so much as you have trusted in Christ, put your faith in him, and you are now united with him, that good guiding hand is also acting in your life. There is this spillover effect as you knit yourself to Christ through grace and faith in his life, death, and resurrection. You've been united to him, and now you can celebrate the fact that God is only ever working out good in your life for his glory. We talked about that at length last week, and it should inform the way you view the world, the way you view your circumstances. When things don't go your way, you affirm God is good all the time. He hasn't left me. He has not lost control. But I am knit together with Christ in the gospel, and this good, sovereign God who preserved his life is working in the same manner in my life. 
That is a crucial doctrine for Christians to believe and to reaffirm in their hearts daily. We desperately need it. But there is more going on here as Matthew shows us Jesus in the likeness of Moses. There is more than him simply demonstrating again that God was preserving this child's life. And we begin to understand the more of what's going on as we note a couple of verbal correspondences with the Exodus narrative. So if you look with me at verse 13 again in Matthew, we read, The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. There is a verbal correspondence here with Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. Now notice... By the time we get to Exodus chapter 2, Moses is no longer a child. He has grown up, and if you cast your minds back, he has that incident where he kills an Egyptian, and he flees. He flees from Pharaoh, and it's at that point that there is a verbal correspondence between Matthew's gospel and the Exodus narrative, at the point of Moses having grown into a man. Notice again, If we drop down to verse 20 in chapter 2 of Matthew, we read, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Again, that's another verbal correspondence with the Exodus narrative, specifically Exodus chapter 4, verse 19. Again, that is beyond Moses' childhood, It's got nothing to do with God preserving him as an infant, but it is speaking of Moses' return from his time in the wilderness. His earthly life as a man. So through these verbal correspondences, what you see is that Matthew is impressing upon us Jesus in the likeness of Moses, not simply as both were children. What Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus, in totality, shares a correspondence with Moses in totality. Here, if only by virtue of a a hint, a subtle hint, Matthew is bringing into view the entire life of Moses and impressing it into the entire life of Jesus. And he's commending us to view Moses, view Jesus in this gospel in the likeness of his predecessor, namely Moses. And as we move through Matthew's gospel, this mosaic theme will come up over and over again. So then, if we understand that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a greater Moses, we might ask, what exactly are the correspondences that he wants us to see? And I would say they are primarily twofold. And zooming out here and taking Matthew's gospel as a whole into view, and the correspondences that Matthew wants us to see between Christ and Moses are primarily twofold. The first is that both men serve to to release their people from bondage and set them free. Think back to Moses. His mission was to set the people of Israel free from their bondage in Egypt. 
They were enslaved by Pharaoh. Their labor kept increasing. Pharaoh was working them to the bone because he felt threatened by them. Moses was a reluctant leader. God called him. At the burning bush, he commissioned him, and Moses hesitated. In one sense, he was very bold because he pushed back on God. But he was very hesitant as it related to going towards Pharaoh. And God says, you will go and say to Pharaoh, this is my God, let my people go. Reluctantly, Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? And he shows Pharaoh who he is. Through almighty displays of his power that brings the most powerful nation at that time on the entire planet to its knees. Through these different signs, he brings Pharaoh and the nation to their knees. To the point where Pharaoh finally says, oh, you have to get out of here. I can't compete with your God any longer. And it's at that point that Moses, in his God-ordained role, parts the waters of the Red Sea. I wish we could have seen it. Walls of water on either side stood up. Not one drop falling without God ordaining it. And thousands of Israelites walking through on dry land. Following their leader, Moses. And Pharaoh, ironically, has a change of heart at the last minute. So he commissions his armies to go after them. And they, sure enough, they do. And then the waters come crashing down and he destroys them. Moses sets his people free from bondage. That's how we're introduced to him as a figure in the biblical narrative. How much more so does Jesus set us free from our bondage? You have to understand, to see and appreciate Jesus as the greater Moses, you have to see how much more is our bondage. So much more than the physical bondage portrayed of the Israelites in Exodus is our bondage, apart from Christ, to sin. The sinner is wrapped in cords of sin, bondage to sin, that day by day are growing tighter around his chest and tighter around his neck. And the bondage that we experience as sinners is far stronger than any manual labor to which Pharaoh gave the Israelite people. We can't see it with our eyes. You can be the most physically comfortable person on planet Earth. And theologically, it's true of you that apart from Christ, your enslavement to sin is more oppressive than anything that is pictured of the Israelites in Egypt. And you do not have the strength to break free from those cords of bondage. You do not have the strength to do anything about your bondage to sin. What is tragic is that apart from any work of God's grace in your heart, you actually delight in that bondage. We love our sin. 
and we don't love God. We don't even have enough spiritual awareness to see that we need rescuing. And so the bondage to which we're enslaved gets heavier and tighter with each passing year. And we keep feeding it. We delight in it and we don't cry out for mercy. And what Jesus does is he comes as the greater Moses to set his people free from a spiritual bondage. Jesus comes to set us free from the spiritual bondage that we didn't acknowledge we needed. He gives us a salvation that we were not aware that we needed. He comes and sets the cords of bondage loose so that that they are smashed into pieces, never to be wrapped around the Christian, never to be retied onto those whom Jesus has saved. Do you understand that as Christ has saved you, you are never, ever, ever again enslaved to sin? Does the Christian continue to sin after his salvation? Yes. The war with the flesh continues until the day Christ returns. But the key difference is that you will never again be enslaved to sin. It will never again have mastery over you. Jesus will not let those cords of bondage retie themselves to you. And so as Jesus comes as the greater Moses, he sets you free to be free indeed. To be free forever after. Never again to experience bondage to sin. But now wonderfully free to obey his command. Which is exactly what God created you to do. Charles Wesley wrote long, my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound by sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon inflamed with light. My chains fell off. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Jesus is our Moses. First, because he sets us free from bondage. But there is a second way in which Jesus functions as a greater Moses. Again, zooming out, noting the initial correspondence here. And then zooming out to take the totality of Matthew's gospel into view this morning. In Matthew's gospel in particular... He stresses Jesus' mosaic teaching ministry. So in all of the Gospels, we see Jesus come as a miracle worker, as a teacher, and ultimately as a savior. In Matthew's Gospel in particular, he puts an accent on Jesus as a teacher. So in weeks to come, I'll show you how Matthew's Gospel is divided into five clear sections. And one of the defining marks of each section is the sustained discourse from Jesus 
as it relates to his teaching. That's a literary feature of Matthew that is not found in any of the other Gospels. These five units of sustained teaching from Jesus. And perhaps more immediately than that, we see on the near horizon the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7, only to be found in Matthew's Gospel. And notice there the many mosaic allusions. To begin with, Jesus goes up to the mountain. It's a small inflection in the text, but it's important in Matthew's theology because he's presenting Jesus as the greater Moses. Moses led his people out of Egypt, and he led them to the mountain. Moses received from the mountain God's good law. He gave it to the people of Israel. And it was to be to them life-giving. The law in the Old Testament was never intended to be a means by which they would earn God's love. They already have it. I am the Lord your God who drew you out of Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. Don't skip those words because they lay a foundation of grace. I am the Lord, your God. I have already given myself to you. I have drawn you out of Egypt. And as Hosea says, therein you see my love. Know that you have my love. In response to my love, here is my good law. And that teaching, chapter after chapter in the Old Testament, was given so that the people of Israel would flourish in their relationship with their God. But they rejected his law. They turned their back on his good commands. They enslaved themselves again to sin. Jesus comes in Matthew's gospel being presented as the greater Moses. In chapter 5, he goes up the mountain and he opens his mouth and he gives a new law, which is to be life-giving for his disciples. This is the very means by which you will flourish in a relationship with your Father in heaven. And this law is completely out of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is no one saying that. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. There is no one saying that. Everyone says, pity those who mourn. Jesus brings a law from heaven and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of my Father. Not even the Pharisees are saying that. The Pharisees wouldn't say that. Jesus proclaims that. He says, you need to be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. And on and on, his good teaching comes to us as a means by which we would live our life, not to earn God's favor. It is given to us by grace through faith as we look at the person of Christ and accept him for who he is. 
If you are here this morning, having not been reconciled to God, never having put your trust in Christ, you don't have God's favor. You do not, and you cannot earn it through your own efforts. The only way in which you can have God's favor is by accepting Jesus for who he said he is. As a savior who came to make a payment for your sin, then the love of God is lavished upon you. Never to leave your life. His favor is upon you, and then he requests in return that you would live your life in obedience to his word, out of gratitude for your salvation. And Jesus comes as the greater Moses to give that very law to us. A few weeks ago, I joked that it is a fearful thing as a preacher to consider the task of preaching the greatest sermon ever preached in such a way that you don't detract from it, but you make it clear. As I've been thinking more and more about that sermon and the reality of us working through it for many months, I'm really excited. As a church, we will submit our minds and our hearts Sunday by Sunday to the sermon that came from the greater Moses for our good. Now, the response, as we see Matthew presenting Jesus as our Moses, is to worship him and very practically to worship him by not returning to the sins by which from which we have been saved. I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. If you track with the Exodus narrative, God saves these people from Egypt. Moses is their leader. He leads them to the mountain and they receive a good life-giving law. And then when you get to the book of Moses, the book of Numbers, they're in the wilderness. And they're returning to their same old sins again. And what's fascinating as you read the Numbers narrative in particular is that Moses portrays the people in that book in the likeness of their enslavement in Egypt. They're not in Egypt anymore. They've been set free from that. And yet the same things become true of them in the wilderness as was true of them in Egypt. He's showing them they're right back where they were before by their own choice now. They're returning to their sin. They're not responding in gratitude. As Jesus is the greater, better, more glorified Moses, the imperative that comes to us this morning is that we would live as those who have been set free from sin. Consider who you once were and don't be that person. But according to the grace afforded to you in the gospel, fight against sin in your life and run towards the word of God and do all that you can to get your life under his word. Do everything that you can to conform your life to God's word as a way of showing your gratitude That Jesus is our Moses who sets us free from bondage and gives us a life-giving law. That's the first correspondence, the first resonant frequency that Matthew presents to us. 
The second one is with David. And this one is a little bit trickier to trace. Matthew goes on in verse 14. He rose, Joseph, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I've spoken to you a number of times in the last few weeks about seeing the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. And every time we see a New Testament quotation in an Old Testament text, we understand we've got some study to do. We have to ask why that author saw fit to use that text. What's the theological point that he wants to make? Scholars commonly agree that this particular New Testament use of the Old Testament is the most difficult in all of the Bible. Are you encouraged? (laughs) It is the most difficult New Testament use of the Old Testament to understand in all of Scripture. So if we can understand this one, we've become professionals at this. I need for your attention to be here. If you've been asleep thus far this morning, now's the time to wake up. The fact that the Word of God is difficult needs no apologies. The Word of God is wonderful. It is simple enough that a child could read it and understand eternal truths. At the same time, it is complex and profound enough that you and I could spend the next thousand years considering it and have not reached its depths. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't shy away from difficult texts, but we give them all of our attention so as to honor the Lord, and that would include this quotation from Hosea here. The fact that Hosea is doing something out of the ordinary or I should say the fact that Matthew is, is made plain to us by simply considering that had Matthew wanted to talk more about the Exodus, presumably he would have gone back to the book of Exodus. Just consider that first observation as an entry point into this problem. Matthew introduces us to Jesus as the greater Moses. He's now moving on to a second correspondence. If Matthew had wanted to talk more about the Exodus event alone, where would he have gone in the Old Testament to do that but the book of Exodus? And yet he doesn't. What he does is he goes to Hosea as a way of talking about the Exodus. So something more is going on just by that first initial observation. Turn with me back to Hosea. We read chapter 11 this morning. Go a little bit further back to chapter 3. I'll give you the thesis statement up front and then we'll try to see it. The reason Matthew goes back to the Exodus event by way of Hosea is because he wants to present Jesus as the greater David, 
who will lead us home. That's why Matthew does this. Now, how do I show that? When you get to the book of Hosea, the prophet is speaking all about God's love. The prophet Hosea speaks extensively about God's love, God's love in judgment, and God's love in salvation. One of the defining features of Hosea's prophecy is its Davidic element. Hosea labors on David in his prophecies of judgment and salvation. Look with me just by way of example at chapter 3. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's just one example of many within the book of Hosea where the prophet projects forward with an oracle of salvation, final salvation, and does so by invoking the reality of David. Now think just a little bit about that prophecy. He cannot be referring to the first David. Hosea gives these prophecies long after the historical reign of David the man. He's finished. Hosea then comes along, projects forward, and says there is coming a day of salvation for God's people Israel when they will seek David. So we understand the Davidic element to Hosea's theology is one that speaks inherently of a second David, a David-like figure who's coming on the horizon of salvation history. That is everywhere in Hosea. Now look at chapter 11. This is where Matthew is quoting from. Follow the logic of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. There's the Matthew quotation. Out of Egypt, I called my son, speaking about the exodus, the salvation that the people experience being led out of Egypt. But, verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Hosea is reciting history now, and he's saying God saved his people out of love for them. His son, Israel. But when he saved them, they didn't respond to him with obedience, but they sacrificed to idols. Therefore, verse 5, they won't return to the land of Egypt. They're not going back to the place from which he drew them, but they are going to Assyria. Assyria shall be their king. Hosea is at that point leaning forward towards the exile. The exodus is when they were drawn out of Egypt. They didn't obey in the land. So God says, now there's an exile on the horizon. You're going to be taken away. The northern kingdom was taken away at the hands of the Assyrians and the southern at the hands of the Babylonians. Hosea speaks of that. But, it's not done there, verse 8, how can I give you up, 
Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? The love of God is put on display even here, all the way through Hosea. We see the love of God at work in judgment and salvation. And here in chapter 11, the logic is I saved you from Egypt as an act of my love. You didn't respond to it. You worshipped the Baals and the idols. So now you're going into exile. But I won't be done with you finally because my love for you is too great. How can I give you up, says God? So notice verse 11. He projects as far forward as he can and he says, They shall come trembling. Very similar language to Hosea 3. They shall come in fear. Chapter 11, they shall come trembling. He's projecting beyond the exile now and saying one day there will be a final salvation. And we're informed not by Hosea 11, it doesn't make it explicit here, but Hosea 3, that the means by which that final salvation shall be effected is through a second David. They won't lead themselves from exile. They won't lead themselves out of exile. So where is it going to come from? Where's this saving act coming from? The exodus had as its head Moses. The exile. The return, the final eschatological return from exile comes by way of a second David. And so Matthew, as he presents to us Jesus, is able to say, out of Egypt I've called my son, it has been fulfilled in this child, because he is drawing on the whole theology of Hosea. And he understands within Hosea's theology how Christ is to function as a second, greater, more glorious David who will lead his people home. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. The New Testament typically speaks of salvation according to three different categories. In the New Testament, sometimes we read of salvation as a past act in the believer's life. That tends to be how you and I speak of it today. You might ask somebody, how were you saved? We're referring to past salvation, that moment when God gave you eyes of faith to see Christ for who he is. That's one way the New Testament speaks of salvation. The New Testament also speaks of salvation in terms of an ongoing process. Without denying the moment of justification... The New Testament sometimes talks about the fact that we are being saved. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We tend to use the word sanctification when we refer to that kind of ongoing process. It doesn't deny the reality of a historical transaction wherein your sins were forgiven and righteousness was bestowed, but it acknowledges that God still has work to do in you. And sometimes the New Testament uses the word salvation for that process. 
The third way in which sometimes the New Testament talks about salvation is to refer to our final glorification with Christ. Our salvation is not yet complete, but one day we will stand before Jesus, and that is our final salvation. That is when we are made complete in him. We tend to think the least about this third category. As you meditate upon the gospel and God's work in your life, most likely you think the least about final salvation. You think a lot about past salvation and ongoing sanctification. The problem with that is that the Bible regularly commends to us the meditation of final salvation as the means to elicit present obedience. This is a logic that is all the way through Scripture. How do I obey God's word today? I don't feel excited towards God. I feel overwhelmed by my circumstances. How do I live a life that honors him? One way in which the Bible commends us to obedience in the present is by setting forth before us the reality of our final salvation. The scriptures teach us to be much in the thoughts of final salvation because it has a funny way of affecting our behavior in the present. And we affirm this logic all the time in our earthly existence. In many other realms, we adhere to this logic. Recently, as a family, we took a trip to Zion National Park. We went just after Thanksgiving. So it was right at the tail end of the fall season, right as they began their winter season. So as we went to the park, one of the things we were eager to do was the Narrows. Heard a lot about it, seen lots of fun photos, and we wanted to, to do this wading through the riverbed. At times, the water's kind of up to here, or if you're one of my kids, more like here. And we wanted to do this. And so we made a plan, one of our days in Zion, that we would do the Narrows. And I was mindful to prepare my children as much as I could mentally for what was about to happen. And so I said to them over and over again, this is going to be really hard. Yeah, we know that. I said, no, it's going to be really hard. I said, this is going to be cold. You know that. They said, yeah, we know that. And I said, look, when we get there, I want you to be brave. I want you to do this. If you say that you're in, you've got to be brave. And when we do it, there's no complaining. And if I ask you to do something, you have to do it. Do you understand? Yeah, we got it, Dad. And I kept doing this to the point where they said, Dad, can you stop telling us to be brave? <laughs> so we get there and we put the, the dry suits on and we get into that riverbed. I did not anticipate how bitterly cold that water would be. <laughs> it shocked me and I had to be brave. It was, it was bitterly cold. And because it's the narrows, you've got these rock faces either side of you. And the sun is setting because it's in the afternoon. There's no sunlight in there. It's completely in shade. So every so often, one of us would stumble, one of the kids would trip, and their hand goes in, and now their hand's numb 
It is bitterly cold. And I'm fearful, though I didn't mention this to them, that one of them would trip and go under, and the water would be down into the suit, and that would be the end of it. So I'm watching out for them, and sure enough, it becomes difficult for them to keep on their happy faces. It becomes difficult for them not to complain. As I ask them to do things, it becomes increasingly more difficult for them to obey. Now, here's what I noticed. I didn't mention it to them at the time, but I noticed what happened. We got about four miles in, wading through this water. And we realized, you can congratulate them afterwards, they were (laughs) troopers. We got about four miles in, and we realized we got to turn around now if we're going to get the last bus out of the park. So we stopped there, and I said, okay, guys, we're done. We're going to turn around and head home. Immediately, their spirits picked up. Immediately, they were able to smile. They were able to do what I asked of them. They were to be able to be very positive about the whole thing. The temperature of the water had not changed one degree. There was not one extra ounce of sunlight in that riverbed. Nothing had changed about their circumstances. But now they're obeying. Now they're complying. Now they're happy. Why? Because they see that they're headed home. They know that around this corner and around that corner, that's where the bus is. And then they get on the bus and they go back and get a warm shower. They knew what was ahead of them. And I didn't mention anything, but it was so interesting to observe how their spirits changed when you bring the final finish line into view. It changes everything. And the Bible commends us to think according to that logic as it relates to our earthly Christian life. If we would only be disciplined to meditate upon our final salvation which is only possible because Jesus is the true and better David and he will lead us home. Oh, how much better our lives would honor the Lord in the struggles of life in a broken world. Matthew presents to us Jesus as our Moses who set us free from bondage and who gives us a life-giving law. He shows us Jesus as our David, who will most certainly lead us home. And as we see our Savior in these likenesses, we worship him and we obey with thankful hearts. Let's pray to close. Father, we are thankful this morning. For Jesus having come as a greater Moses and a greater David, as a more glorious Moses and a more glorious David, as our Moses and our David. As we zoom out and take Matthew's gospel into view, we see that Jesus comes to set the captives free. He destroys the cords of bondage to sin, never to be refastened 
upon us. He sets us free and he gives to us teaching for our good. As we think upon Jesus as the greater Moses, Father, may we be faithful to not return to the life from which we have been saved, but to strive according to your grace to live lives of obedience to your word. Father, as we see Jesus as the greater David, through this use of Hosea, he invokes this theology of God's love that will return his people from exile. How? Through David. Their deliverance from exile will come through David. We see the implications for our lives. Jesus is the greater, more glorious king. And he will lead us home to final salvation. Train our hearts to think upon our final salvation. That we would glory in it, that we would rejoice in it. That we would live our lives according to it. Father, may we be found as those who meditate often upon the reality of standing before Christ very soon without sin, made complete in him to worship him forever. And I pray it would bear fruit in our lives today. We commit ourselves to you knowing just how much we need your grace to supply our needs. We ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen.